0: So one of the things that businesses can do is to be socially responsible and treat their workers and treat their customers with, with respect and dignity. And those are the businesses that can form strong
1: community bonds and that will really be able to sustain in the long run. You're listening to the voice of Ping Ying Chua, who has a background in data science, economics, and neuroscience. Her experience ranges from behavior insight data analytics for policy making, and economic analysis. In particular, she is well versed in communicating and working with stakeholders from multiple different domains. In her spare time, she enjoys writing about obscure concepts in most relatable ways. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Vision Science and Neuroscience from the University of Melbourne, and a Master's of Philosophy and Neuroscience from Cambridge, and a Master's of Arts in Management from Harvard University. She writes a newsletter for LinkedIn and is the author of a book called One Minute Theorems. In this episode, you'll learn why we buy what we buy, when we buy it, and how we buy it. Remember at the beginning of the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic, where all the toilet paper were one of the first commodities to be all bought up by the masses? How does panic impact our decision making and what we do with our wallets? You'll learn easy to apply theorems and concepts based on behavior economics, and how these concepts can be applied to your personal and professional life. You can also learn how to pivot your business so it will survive and thrive during this uncertain times. If you're ready to be a smarter and savvier consumer in the midst of chaos, then stay tuned and listen on. Hello friends, this is the What is Public Health podcast with your host, Dr. Key What is public health? To me, public health is the invisible force that keeps you healthy every day, and I bet you didn't even know it. This podcast is your source of the latest trend in public health. Hello, friends out there. I have a special guest here today. Actually, a friend I met several years ago, and we reconnected on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is a wonderful platform to connect with people professionally. Paying Chua is from Singapore, and she writes on economic principles, and other topics related to economics in Asia for LinkedIn. So definitely check out her newsletter. Maybe you can share your career path with us. Yeah,
0: definitely. So uh, my career path has been has been a bit unconventional, I'd say. I started out initially doing neuroscience uh, and I worked for the defense sector. And after, after several years, I, I decided to branch out into behavioral insights and data science. So I I I started at a a startup called Grad. So it was a right healing startup which was pretty small back then, but since then it's grown it's grown fairly big and about 2 years ago it actually made made headlines uh, for being the company in Southeast Asia that bought Uber out. So you may have heard about you may have heard of this company. Right now I'm working at LinkedIn and my my job is kind of it's it's extremely my job is extremely interesting. It's the intersection between data science, economics, and public policy. So I get to see how we how we can use data to really really help to shape decisions and make an impact uh, in the world. So I'm really excited uh, with what I do, and I'm really excited to share to share this with everyone.
1: So it's wonderful to hear all the different jobs and career paths that you've taken, and. To see how we can learn more about data science and economics and policy at LinkedIn, and, and definitely learn more about um, all its offering, especially during this time when we're staying at home. And based on your economic background, you know what is your take on the panic buying we see in the world? Like, you know, we noticed that what went first, like toilet paper and then hand sanitizers, and then and now guns in the U.S. So why do people buy the things they do when they panic?
0: Yeah, so I think panic, panic, it's really a really, it's a really primal instinct. And it happens, it happens when people feel like they're losing, they've lost control of something. And I think that's really what's happening now. People, people feel very fearful. It's a, it's a very uncertain situation. And it feels like things, things are out of your control. And so there's this, there's this urge to do something, just anything to feel like you are back in control. And impulse buying just and buying stuff really just happens to be one of those actions that one can take to feel like they're doing something that's that's helping them to gain control of a situations of a situation that's really really uncertain. So I think that's uh, that's one of the reasons why this is going on. And you, I I I'm glad you mentioned the toilet paper because I think it's been one of the it's been one of the top topics. That people ask one of the top questions that people ask because it's not instinctively it's not one of the things that a person needs to survive right you don't you don't eat toilet paper it's not it's not a necessity of life and yet you see it flying off the shelves all across the world so why toilet paper well firstly i think it's it's uh it's a vicious cycle here so what happens is some people buy toilet paper and some people start to buy the toilet paper and as you know, toilet paper is really big and it's very visible when it's sitting on the shelves in the supermarket. So once people start to buy it, all these long rows of toilet paper shelves start, to look, start looking empty. And it's not, it's, it takes time to restock those shelves. So then the perception of a shortage comes in. People, people feel like, oh no, the toilet paper is running out and then they get scared. And so and so others who walk walk by this this emptying shelves get scared and they buy some too, and it just keeps it keeps going and going until the shelves are empty. So I think it's really it starts off as a perception thing. Another thing about toilet paper is that surprisingly, although it's not, uh, although it's not like a necessity of life it's surprisingly it's a surprisingly practical choice for example you know if you if you were thinking about buying food uh say canned sardines for example and the shop ran out of canned sardines you could buy you could buy tuna you could buy some some other type of canned food but when it comes to toilet paper it there's very few substitutes for toilet paper and so there's um there's a there's a so it's actually quite practical. It's Economically, it's quite a practical choice to think about buying something that doesn't have a lot of substitutes. Another, another reason why this is practical is toilet paper doesn't, doesn't expire. It doesn't go bad. And eventually, everyone needs to use it. So there's, it seems like there's really no downside to buying more toilet paper. And and therefore, you know, people people are when they're trying to buy stuff to feel like to feel like they're doing something to 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 assert a sense of control over the situation. Toilet paper is one of those things that they can buy and feel like there's really no downside to it. This this kind of scarcity, it's the the, the scarcity effect, it's it's present in so many things, right? So let's say you were you were buying something online and you saw that it say oh five five items left you might be more tempted to buy it just because it looks like it's running out or even when when uh when there's a limited edition designer bag that comes out there's a scarcity to it and therefore you know people just feel like they want they they that you're right it's really a bit like a fomo
1: more sense here. So, you know, that's great um, to, to share with us that this is um, not uncommon, what, we're, what we see about the toilet paper mm-hmm. issue. So are there any economic concept that th- actually describes this type of behavior? Several. I think
0: there's a concept called tragedy of the commons. So this concept talks about how when individuals are sharing a common resource, um, when, when they decide to behave in a way that's that's self-serving and beneficial to themselves, it can actually lead to an overall negative outcome for everyone. So the classic example that's, that's always used is of several farmers who are sharing a common pasture grassland. So every farmer will, tr- of course, try to raise as many cows as they can. And they'll try to put as many cows as they can onto this common grass so that they can, they can sell the cows and make more money but what really what eventually happens is that when you put too many cows onto the land the land doesn't get to rest the grass doesn't get to grow and the, whole, the land just overgrazed and damaged and eventually it's unusable for everyone so it's really to the detriment of everyone that 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 uh, that this happens similarly i think the panic buying that we are seeing um, the panic buying that's that starts with a few people it actually spreads and it leads to more and more panic buying by more and more people and uh, it's a uh, and eventually what happens then is that the common resource which are the items that everyone's trying to
1: buy gets depleted that's that's an interesting model the tragedy of the common described right now as way to depict the toilet paper issue that we see <laughs> because this model actually reminds me of something that we see in public health perhaps it's a a symbol of the tragedy of the commons, like for example, in public health, we have vaccines and vaccination is a public health policy Mm -hmm. where, you know, you're trying to boost the immunity of the community by having people get vaccinated so that the spread of this infectious disease is then diminished. And it only works when there's a strong majority of the population is vaccinated to build this herd immunity. So when you're giving an example of, of the cows, it just reminded me of herd immunity, <laughs> uh, the herd of cows. And that, so similarly, like we built a strong, uh, we have a strong majority to build a herd immunity. But when one or a group of people decide not to get themselves vaccinated, because they thought, well, you know, if this other person is vaccinated, then that, that means I don't have to be vaccinated. And if, if everyone starts thinking that way, then herd immunity is no longer built. And the effect of the vaccine diminishes because even if you have just a few people va- vaccinated, there's a potential of the infectious disease being spread among the people who aren't vaccinated. So, So the few that did get vaccinated is no longer benefit from the herd immunity because it's not a herd anymore. The toilet paper example is that people start buying and getting more things but here if in the tragedy of the con which is the opposite effect when people stop doing things and there's a ripple effect of stop doing you see also a bad outcome what could be interventions that that you think we could do so that it prevents this from happening so these models are a way to to understand the behavior of what's happening but after under after we identify that what can we do i'm just curious
0: yeah so i mean in in the case of the in the case of the cows one of the common solutions is to to really designate specific areas on the on the common land that's that farmers can use for themselves this creates an incentive for, for the farmers not to damage not to damage the land because the part that they're damaging is is the part that uh, they're using so i think so some kind of rig, some kind of ring fencing similarly i think for on in the toilet paper scenario there are in really just any kind of uh, large quantity of buying uh, hoarding kind of scenarios there is there is uh, one of the most common ways is to put quotas on what people uh, on how much people can buy so this this limits how this limits the spiral of the of the panic buying and the hoarding and and it can hopefully keep things under control.
1: Can you tell us more what is behavior economics? Because I know that you just shared one model. And how is it different from just plain O economics?
0: So behavior economics is a is a combination of, of different things, including psychology, emotions, cultural norms, uh, social behavior, and of course, economics. So it's an incorporation of uh, more human elements into tra- traditional economic. An example I like to give is that let's say I'm wearing, a, I have a gold ring that's probably worth hundred dollars in its weight in gold if I melt it down. So you know the logical decision here is that if you, if you offered me like let's say five thousand dollars to buy to buy this ring, the rational decision I should make is to sell the ring to you. But what if this was my wedding ring? What if it had additional sentimental value? So the rational, the rational argument doesn't make sense here. And I, I, I will probably make a decision that's not completely rational. And that's really behavioral economics, right? Because now I'm putting in emotional values in, I'm putting in uh, psychological thoughts into this. And really uh, behavioral economics is the economics of human behavior and how being human and having human thoughts and emotions and so social social norms helps to shape how we behave, and uh, and the the economic
1: decisions that we make. So how can businesses use behavioral economics to drive more sales or services during and after the coronavirus pandemic?
0: Right. So I think we just we just kind of spoke about about one example of behavioral economics, which is uh, when when people feel like there is a limited quantity of something. They'll feel they'll feel a bit they'll feel much more inclined to buy it. Uh, I think that with specifically with this coronavirus situation, uh, I've also unfortunately seen a lot of businesses trying to play on the fear of the virus and trying to get people to buy more things that they don't necessarily need. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I walked past this shop that was selling spectacles, and I was actually quite shocked to see that. They were advertising a, a special type of, of glasses that could help to prevent the wearer from being infected by the virus. So this was shocking because I think, first of all, it's it's not true, but it's it's playing off the fears of people and and you know behavioral economics when you or be or an an understanding of psychology when used in a way that's that's not Morally correct. I think this is this is an example of what, what happens. This kind of business model is really not sustainable in the long run because maybe you can sell a few more glasses uh, to a couple of people. But you know, with social media these days, uh, negative publicity of opportuni- opportunistic behavior can spread very, very quickly. And so any business that tries to play off the fears of people that tries to be opportunistic, will really face a very swift backlash. And I think the stigma of this backlash will will last a lot longer than the short-term gains from it. On the positive side, I also believe that most businesses do try to do the right thing. And I do see a lot of communities uh, bending together right now, uh, uniting to fight the virus. So one of the things that businesses can do is to be socially responsible and treat treat their workers and treat their customers with, with respect and dignity. And those are the businesses that can form strong community bonds and that will really be able to sustain in the long run.
1: Thank you for sharing that as a reminder for all businesses.
0: On top of that, I think another, another opportunistic type of behavior that we see is uh, price gorging. So this means people, people who are selling items for a much, much higher price. So we saw this very much right in the beginning of the spread of the virus, where facial masks and uh, hand sanitizers were sold out everywhere. And you could see people online or in shops selling, selling masks for exorbitant prices. And I think there was a very there was a very strict clamp down on that, and right and then definitely I think that's where government in government uh, intervention can come into play in a very positive way.
1: So what do you think is when will we feel safe again? Going out to a restaurant, sitting at a movie theater, or working you know, with our laptops at a coffee shop anymore. I'm just curious, uh, based on behavior economics. I think uh,
0: right now, it's a very uncertain time. There's a lot of, there's a lot of information about the virus that, that we don't know, or there's a lot of new information that's coming out on it. So and that's why we see a lot of uncertainty and we see a lot of fear going on. Um, it's coming out not because the virus is scary, uh, so don't get me wrong this virus is scary and we should fear it, but I think a lot of the fear comes because it's we are we are not sure exactly what the virus does we don't know how we don't know how long how long it spreads for we don't know we don't know how long it survives in the environment we don't know a lot about it and we, we don't at this point in time I think uh, epidemiologists may not even be sure about whether 14 days is the incubation period or if it's actually an even longer incubation period. So all these kind of uncertainty creates the fear. And the fear is what's stopping stopping a lot of us from feeling safe when we go out. But of course you know this this uncertainty will not last forever. Um, there are many, many bright minds working on it right now. And understand the virus then what it is and how to contain it and once we understand all of this I believe that that the fear will subside because by understanding how what the virus is and how to contain it then interventions can be put in put in place to limit the spread of the virus even even when people go out and when that happens I think the fear will subside and eventually people will feel safe going out again.
1: Where do you see the economy right now, like in three months and after the pandemic? So I believe that as long as there are strong
0: foundations in place in the economy, businesses that have, that have skilled employees and, and strong products and really good, good business models, then the recovery of the economy can come very quickly once the virus has been contained.
1: What are ways that we can develop strong foundations in businesses, I guess, in the US or other places? Because I think right now there's a lot of small businesses that are the one that may suffer in the short run because they may not be able to recover as swiftly as large organizations.
0: So the virus has definitely hit small businesses a lot harder than large organizations that, that have a buffer in place. So one thing I think that small businesses can do right now as they are uh, as as they are um, closed and waiting waiting for for the shelter at homes to be over is to is to think about what to do once once the virus is coming. So meaning to plan for strategies when they reopen. An example could uh, an example I've seen. Is I've seen some businesses start to sell uh, packages or coupons for the future. So what this means is that they start selling uh, a bundle of of services that they can provide, and and this helps them to mitigate the short-term cash flow issues. I also I've also heard examples of several businesses starting to reorganize their their supply their supply chain. So tra- starting to reorganize where they where they get their inventory from, and starting to really think about the types of uh, the types of business strategies that they want to put in
1: place. I guess how would restaurant owners know how many customers will feel comfortable being in their restaurants again? I mean, I'm thinking takeouts right now are doing okay. So restaurants that are offering takeouts or delivery are doing fine. But you know, restaurants that are, for example, buffet style, you know. I mean, that's gonna be hard for them to offer takeouts, but also, you know, whenever it does reopen, like how many people are gonna be feel comfortable again, you know, at a buffet or playgrounds, you know, where there's a lot of interaction with all these other kids, like, you know, would you take your kids to playgrounds or amusement parks where there's a lot of interaction with people. So I'm just thinking like those type of businesses where it may be harder to have pre-order or pre-orders of services and products, like, what what are things you think they could do
0: so i'm glad you brought out these examples because this is this is really an illustration of of the types of uh reorienting and pivoting that businesses can do so for example you brought out uh, you you talked about uh restaurants that that do buffet style meals so you know, once at, at the very beginning, when the virus, uh, when when the virus has been contained and people start going out, uh, most people might not immediately feel comfortable spending several hours in a restaurant at a buffet. So, restaurants that 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 primarily serve this kind of this kind of customers might need to rethink uh, their strategy in the short term. So, for example, uh, they might they might want to think about instead of having self-serve buffets, perhaps, perhaps they want to have a set menu of options that people can, can pre-order and then and then pick up. And that's what I meant about uh, taking the time right now to rethink on strategies that, that will be effective once uh, it's time to reopen.
1: Oh, that's a really good point, how restaurants can pivot um, by... Uh, offering different types of menu options. What are other ways that businesses can pivot?
0: So, I mean, I've heard I've heard many many very creative examples of business, businesses pivoting. The one that really sticks with me is is of beer companies. So, so I've heard I've heard that uh, beer factories have started to to adjust their brewery operations. And, and switch to producing hand sanitizer instead of beer. I think that's really an example of using existing, existing infrastructure and, and existing tools, but changing the strategy and, and pivoting very quickly to provide something that's, that's of relevance and that's of value right now.
1: What measures has the Singapore government taken to mitigate the economic impact?
0: So the Singapore government uh, has announced several government stimulus packages. And these are these are uh, these are aimed to support both individuals and businesses. Uh, there's a whole there's a whole range of support packages. Um, for example, the government will offset up to seventy five percent of the first four thousand six hundred dollars of monthly salaries over the next couple of months. So this ensures that companies can avoid laying off workers during this difficult time. And enables the companies to to resume business really quickly once the virus has been contained. Because if the companies are forced to lay off workers, then when it's time to resume business, there's going to be a lag where companies need to hire all workers again. So by ensuring that the workers remain employed, this allows the businesses to, to resume as quickly as possible. So also, there are arrangements with private institutions such as banks to provide support for people who are facing cash flow problems during this time. So, for example, people with loans uh, who cannot afford the instalments can opt to defer payments for the next few months. And this deferment does not affect their credit score and also does not cause any, does not come with any penalties for late payments. So this is an example of the types of uh, the types of mitigation that that are being done in Singapore. Mm-hmm.
1: So since economics does impact so many facets of our lives, as we shared today, our behavior, you know, and then also businesses and uh, and also at a government level, what advice on economics can you share with us to lessen our fear about their businesses?
0: So. I think when it comes down to it, the economy is really very resilient in the long run. So there have been so many challenges in history, right? There, there, there was like a financial depression, there have there, been wars, and there was even the Spanish flu. But every time, the economy has recovered. And, and it's, really very, it's really a very, very resilient economy in the long run. So I believe that this time it's it's not different. Uh, the the systems are very resilient, and also people are very resilient. I think people are much more resilient than they know. And although this is a this is a difficult time for everyone, I also believe that it will bring out the the best and the strongest in all of us. And together as a community, we will emerge a lot more united. And a lot a lot stronger from from
1: this uh, thank you for sharing that and any personal life advice during this difficult time? so I think during this difficult
0: time you know there's there's a tendency to to dwell on the negatives and and to to be very worried or to constantly feel very anxious but what really I think there's scientific research out there that shows that the more you think about something, uh, the longer the emotions associated with it will last. So if we constantly think about being sad, then we will continue to feel sad for a longer time. Um, I think that's this is why it's very important to to think positively right now, and and to just uh, lean on lean on your support networks, and and try and try to keep in touch with everyone and not, not, not isolate yourself away.
1: Thank you so much for sharing all these helpful tips on how to get through and thrive through this difficult situation that we're all experiencing now. So as we come to the end of our interview, what are you up to now, Paying? So I've been working on a book called One Minute Theorems, which was just published a couple of
0: months ago. This book talks about theorems that range across many different genres, including computer science, mathematics, philosophy, psychology, and of course, economics. So the aim of writing this book really was to strip away a lot of the jargon that comes with, with these complex concepts and distill, distill the ideas into short bite-sized pieces that people can understand and relate to. With this book, I hope that all these complicated concepts will become more accessible to a wider audience and that people will feel less daunted in taking the first step to understand these theorems and realize that, you know, these theorems aren't so scary after all. So the book that was, it was released um, earlier this year and we were supposed, I was supposed to do a couple of uh, publicity events which unfortunately have been postponed due to the virus. So the book is available online at Amazon.
1: Listeners out there, if you enjoy the tips that Paying shared with us today, and now you learned about behavior economics, definitely check out this book because you're going to be able to learn so many other theories and models that speaks about what you see in the world. And I like the fact that you know in this book, uh, Paying mentioned that she removes all the jargon and that she gives you practical tips. Um, so I really appreciate that, that you wrote this book for all of us. What's the best way for our listeners to connect with you?
0: So I write regularly on economic trends and concepts on LinkedIn. So uh, if listeners want to connect with me, you can either follow, follow my account on LinkedIn. And also please reach out to connect with me.
1: So listeners definitely connect with Ping Chua. Um, she's on LinkedIn and definitely check out her book, which is available online. So Ping, thank you so much for taking your time to be here with us.
0: Oh, of course. Uh, and thank you, Ki, for having, having me on this call. It was really great chatting with you. Thanks.
1: If you got questions about any of the episodes, feel free to reach out to me directly. And while you're there at it, please subscribe to the podcast and share the episode that you felt connected with so we could be a part of this collective invisible force called public health. Thanks.